Hey, when Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, opened in Italy, many parents felt that the film was too violent to be watched by their kids. In fact, one Italian man named Riccardo Zuccani, he also decided that he didn't want his kids to watch the film, but he did so for a different reason. In fact, in an interview with USA Today, Zuccone commented, My children won't see the film because I want them to have this idea of the spirituality of Christ, not this idea of debauchery or sin. The soul of Jesus is important, not his body. Well, instead of the passion, his kids saw a 30-year-old film about Jesus entitled The Gospel According to Matthew. Zucconi explained his choice of films for his children. He says, that film is very deep, and you don't see a drop of blood. Mr. Zucconi planned to attend and see the passion for himself, but not without taking a few precautions. He said, at times I'll shut my eyes to preserve myself from all this blood. I bring up the interview because Ricardo Zucconi is like many people today. They want a bloodless Christianity. They want a Christ without a cross, salvation without a sacrifice, peace with God without pain on earth, mysticism, not martyrdom. To Zagonis and others like him, the cross is an offense to human sensibilities. It's an embarrassment to modern tastes. I mean, who wants to think about sin and moral accountability and punishment? Folks are interested in happiness not holiness, but the book of Leviticus, and particularly our chapter tonight, chapter 17, lets us know that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Guys, forgiveness is expensive. From the beginning, God said that the wages of sin would be death. This is what drives up the high cost of forgiveness God told Adam and Eve if they ate the forbidden fruit, they would surely die. That's why to make amends for their sin, a death had to occur. Sin requires either your own death or the blood of an innocent proxy. And fig leaves won't do. We learned that too from Genesis. When Adam and Eve tried to cover up with leaves, God said, you got it all wrong. And he slaughtered an animal instead and clothed the guilty couple in skins. Sin's debt had to be paid. Blood had to be shed. Hey, sin had to be pelted with a sacrifice. Spilt blood is the high cost of forgiveness. This is what we learn in Leviticus chapter 17. Let's begin in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. Before a Hebrew killed an animal for food, it first needed to be sacrificed to God. In other words, worship always preceded the meal. Whenever they ate together, they first brought God into their relationships by sacrificing that animal to the Lord. This is what we do, in essence, when we pray before our meals. 
we thank God for the food and we invite him to participate in the fellowship. Now remember, while Israel was in the wilderness, they ate mostly manna, wonder bread. At one point, they even complained because they didn't have enough meat to eat. But when they enter the promised land, that's going to change. And thus, God's going to modify this law. In fact, Deuteronomy 12, you might write it down in your margin. We'll get to it in a few weeks. Deuteronomy 12 will give the people permission to eat the meat without bringing it to the tabernacle. In the land of Canaan, not every steak will have to be a sacrifice. But while they are in the wilderness, before meat becomes plentiful, God wanted to condition his people to offer these sacrifices every time they ate meat. Well, verse 4 speaks of the man who kills an animal without offering it to God as a sacrifice. He says, He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people, to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Sweet smelling barbecue to the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot, this shall be a statue forever for them throughout their generations. Understand, Israel was not the only nation to offer these animal sacrifices. In fact, all of the ancient pagan religions and cultures sacrificed animals to their gods. And here the word translated demons, sacrifices to demons, is the Hebrew word sair, or he-goat. It was a reference to the God that the Greeks would later call Pan. The half-man, half-goat that was always depicted playing the flute. And it's interesting, Pan tormented his subjects. He caused panic. And this is why we get the word Pan, or the word panic from Pan. They sacrificed to Pan to avoid panic. Here, here's another picture of Pan. Thought you'd enjoy that. And here's the scary truth about idolatry. 1 Corinthians teaches us that behind the idol, there is a demon. There is a demon lurking. Idolatry, sorcery, paganism. Today, many new age practices are demonically inspired. And this is the problem. Behind the idol, there is a demon. Your participation is the equivalent of spiritual harlotry. You're being unfaithful to God. Remember this when you consult a horoscope or call the psychic hotline or join a seance. God wants us to trust Him with our future, to trust Him and Him alone. Well, verse 8 tells us, Also you shall say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. Now again, here's a precaution against idolatry. Imagine if everyone were free to make up their own sacrifices. If that were true, eventually pagan ideas, pagan concepts would have creeped into their worship. This is why God regulated and centralized the sacrifices to the tabernacle. It was to keep their worship pure. This is why God's made it very easy for us to find God today. He's put all the marbles in one basket. 
Jesus Christ. He is the sum total of God. If you want to know God, it's easy. Just look to Jesus. There's a principle here for us. He centralized the sacrifices. He regulated them to keep the worship pure. And I think the principle for us is when you divorce worship from the tabernacle, it gets diluted. It becomes polluted. Errors creep in. Worship gets warped. Here's what I mean. When you stop coming to church, for remember, we are the tabernacle, aren't we? We're the temple of God, corporately, together. But when you stop coming to church and you decide that you can worship God just as well on the golf course or at the lake house or at the campground, trust me, your faith will lose focus. It's a principle. God said, bring your sacrifice to the tabernacle. Yes, worship God anywhere, everywhere you choose, but you maintain purity and passion by being committed to the tabernacle. This is where we we find the purity, at the tabernacle. Well, verse 10 tells us, And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul." Now, last week we talked about the day of atonement. But let's make sure we understand the meaning of the word. Atonement. Define it as you see it. Take a cue from its spelling. It literally means at one meant. Atonement reunites us to God. It makes us one with God. The Hebrew word translated atonement was the word kafar, which means to cover. We become connected with God because he no longer sees our sin. Because his blood has covered our sin. This is why there is no salvation without a cross. Your good works, your religious rituals, your charitable offerings will never atone for sin. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus shed that blood on the cross. It's interesting, in August 2003, thieves broke into the church of the Holy Cross in New York City. And they stole a statue of Jesus. But the thieves took an odd approach. The statue that they stole of Jesus was a crucifix. But they took the statue of Jesus, not the cross to which it was attached. In other words, they took Jesus, but they left behind the cross. And that's what folks in many churches today are doing. They're leaving out the cross. Guys, trust me, it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. Notice, too, this phrase, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Remember, Leviticus chapter 17 was written 3,500 years ago, but it assumes modern medical information. Today's doctor couldn't describe the importance of the blood any better than verse 11. It's the blood that brings oxygen and protein and nutrients to the organs and tissues of the body. The life is in the blood. Last week I went for my annual physical. They told me I'm in perfect condition. I probably could even gain 10 pounds or so. It would probably make me a little healthier. Well, I was supposed to lose a couple of pounds, I will say that. 
But they did the blood work, and, and it amazes me. That blood work reveals to the doctor everything that's going on in my body. All of the levels, all of the conditions, all are, are directly related to the blood. Literally, the life is in the blood. Health and nourishment flow through the blood. Verse 12 tells us, Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood, whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust, for it is the life of the flesh. Its blood sustains its life. When an animal was butchered, the Hebrews had procedures that they went through to drain the blood from the piece of meat. It was against the law to eat or to drink blood. The blood was only for sacrifice. It was for spilling, not for drinking and filling. In other words, if you like a rare steak, be thankful in Christ you've been set free from the law. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. I believe this is one reason why the Roman Catholic doctrine of communion is unbiblical. You know, Catholics believe that at the Lord's table, the bread and the wine literally become the physical body and blood of Jesus. If this were true, we would be drinking blood. And therefore violating the commandment here in Leviticus 17. No, when Jesus told us, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He was speaking figuratively, not literally. He was using eating and drinking as metaphors of faith. And, and I like those metaphors. Eating. You know, you don't have to teach a child to eat. It's just natural. Drinking. It's just natural. Faith. It's just natural. Everybody believes in something. He tells us to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus never meant for us to violate Leviticus chapter 17. Thus, when we take communion, Jesus is speaking figuratively there, not literally. Verse 15, And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. In other words, if you're on your way home tonight and you pick up some roadkill for dinner. <laughs> you know, you pick up a nice plump possum on the way home tonight. Remember, you know that blood hasn't been properly drained from the meat. You can eat it, but you'll be unceremonially unclean. You'll be ceremonially unclean for a day. One more comment about the blood. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses take these verses as a prohibition against blood transfusions. And as a result, many of their members have died because they refused a transfusion in the hospital. And theirs is a tragic misinterpretation of this verse. This law does not forbid a medical procedure. It was a dietary restriction. It was ceremonial, not a moral law. Well, chapter 18, on the other hand, does deal with moral laws that still apply to us today. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do. So whose doings are they supposed to do? 
God's doings, don't you think? And according, he says, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If Israel looked backward to Egypt, they saw a bad example. If they looked forward to Canaan, they saw a worse example. Where they left and where they were headed were both pagan cultures and they were sexually permissive people with perverse practices. The perversions of the Egyptians and the Canaanites were shocking and damaging. And God wanted to erect spiritual boundaries around his people to protect them. I hope you realize that God knows more about sex than you do. God created it. It was his idea. And he knows best how it can be enjoyed. God knows how to minimize its dangers and maximize its pleasures. God's boundaries are a reflection of his love, not some repressive attitude. Hey, try to navigate today's sexual landscape on your own. Come up with your own designer morality and you're headed for trouble. You're going to fall into some booby traps and hit some landmines. This is why we need God's guidance when it comes to how to order our sexual lives. God didn't want the Israelites to experience the emotional and the physical pain that came with the perversions of the Gentiles. And so he gave them Leviticus chapter 18. God wanted them to be different. He wanted them to be holy. And despite what we're told by the world today, it is holiness that produces happiness. Will you say that with me? It's holiness that produces happiness. Holiness assures you of lasting happiness, not worldliness, not immorality. But the Hebrews had to be committed. They had to be dedicated to take their sexual cues only from God. If they looked to the world, behind or in front, they would be misled. And the same is true for you and me. Guys, if you let Oprah or Abercrombie and Fitch or Desperate Housewives or Dr. Phil, or Friends reruns, or Britney Spears, or Howard Stern, or Playboy magazine, shape your morality, you and your family are going to end up horribly confused. As someone put it, I cannot and will not cut my conscience to suit this year's fashions. God's word is the only authority on sex that we better trust. Verse 6 begins God's prohibitions. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. And uncovering a person's nakedness was a euphemism for sexual relationships. In other words, here God forbids incest. Did you hear about the redneck who went to the family reunion to pick up girls? That's what God is forbidding here in chapter 18, verse 6. <laughs> Took you a while to get that, didn't it? And he defines what constitutes an incestuous relationship. He says, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover, she is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Now these verses deal both with adult choices 
and with child abuse. For any parent-child encounter is evil. It's sick. And yet, did you know that there are people today advocating incest, pedophilia? In the 1950s, the taboos in America were premarital sex and adultery. But of course, the free love and sex of the 60s removed those marital boundaries. And it brought a social acceptance to what previously was immoral. And the argument followed. If any two heterosexual adults are free to have sex, why not two homosexual adults? You see, once you open the door, it's very tough to get it shut. And now people are suggesting that sex between children and adults can also be healthy. A New York Times article recently called incest the last taboo. Groups like NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association, and SICUS, the Sex Information and Education Council of the U.S., are pushing this agenda. Acceptance of pedophilia is growing in academic and psychological circles. Dr. John Money of John Hopkins University says, Pedophilia should be viewed as a sexual orientation, not a disease or a disorder. SICUS chairman Dr. Derek Calderwood writes, When no one gives the child a bad conscience, intercourse between adults and children causes no mental harm. Dr. Wayne Dines of Hunter College writes, I'm not sure a seven-year-old can give informed consent. That doesn't mean one should necessarily exclude sexual relations from them. Can you believe that? Obviously, this is appalling. It's nauseating. Incest and pedophilia are harmful to kids. They create psychological and emotional scars that hurt that child for the rest of their life. Children are not designed for the intense emotions, let alone the spiritual connotations that come with sex. No child is mature enough to give their consent. I'm telling you, though, society today is being manipulated by sexual predators. And your kids are their target. We need to be careful. Verse 8 tells us, The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he rebukes them for allowing a man in the church to live with his stepmother. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. Here's another kind of incest, to be attracted to your sister. Verse 10, the nakedness of your son's daughter, or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover. For theirs is your own nakedness. This is the incest between a grandparent and a grandchild. And let me warn those of you who have been victims of abuse growing up. If your father did it to you, he can also do it to your kids. That's why you need to be careful. You need to be on guard. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father. She is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. In other words, your half-sister. You remember, this was the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. You know, they were half-siblings. You know, it seems for centuries that marriage between siblings was a practice common in the ancient world. Apparently, in the beginning, it was even accepted by God. I mean, where else would Cain have gotten his wife? I mean, obviously, he married his sister. 
At the time, Adam and Eve were the only family on earth. But as sin began to take its toll, the human gene pool became diluted. The interbreeding had caused problems. And by the time Moses laid down the law, God had decided now to outlaw the practice of brothers and sisters' marriage. Verse 12. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is near of kin to your father. In other words, you can't marry your aunt, nor can you marry your aunt. (laughs) You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is near of kin to your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And some of us us ask, why in the world are we going through this whole list like this? It's because the Canaanites around them were practicing these things. You know, where they were going, where they were from. These practices were prevalent. And God is forbidding his people to act like the Gentiles. Now, when it did come to a sister-in-law marriage, there was one exception. When we get to Deuteronomy 25, we're going to find that if a man dies without giving kids or without having kids and without having someone to pass his inheritance to, it was the brother's job to sire a child for that woman. This was called liverite marriage. And we'll talk more about it when we get to Deuteronomy. Verse 17, You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near of kin to her. It is wickedness. Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. I mean, just ask Jacob why marrying two women is not a good idea. You remember his story. He married both Leah and Rachel. And it was torture. Oh, Jake will tell you, marry two women and you'll live the rest of your days in a battleground. Jacob lived the rest of his life between two warring women and nobody was happy. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover. You remember Jesus too forbid marrying two women when he says, no man shall serve two masters. You remember that. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. That was a case of adultery. Verse 21 is a reference to the worship of a Canaanite idol. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now Molech had the face of an ox and the body of a man. He was a fertility god. And all kinds of lewd and perverse practices were done in his honor. And to appease this evil idol, the Canaanites would offer a child sacrifice. Understand, there's a picture there. Understand how this worked. The idol itself was hollowed out brass. And the Canaanites would stoke it with wood and they would light a fire within the image. It would heat up the metal until it was glowing hot. Then they would lay a baby in Molech's outreached arms. And the priests would blow their horns and beat their drums to drown out the baby's screams. 
human, infant sacrifice sounds so barbaric. It sounds so removed from our culture today, doesn't it? Until we consider today's abortion industry. Are we not sacrificing our unborn to the God of sexual pleasure? Millions have now died in the wake of the sexual revolution. And then we allow our liberal media to drown out the silent screams of the murdered babies with their propaganda. Hey, we want the pleasure of sex without its responsibilities. This is what God is warning us about. Now, Leviticus 18 verse 22 says it about as clearly as it can be said. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Notice the word abomination means disgusting or revolting. Hey, the Bible is not being ambiguous here. I hope you understand. God is not confused over this issue. And if your windows are down, I don't blame you. I would run out and roll them up now. (laughs) I don't mind being distracted because I'm going to repeat that because it needs to be said. Do you understand what God is saying here? Do you realize that was my wife running out? And do you realize what that means? That means my car is filling up with water right now. (laughs) Now, Now I'm really confused. Oh, my. We'll come back later and we'll just cut this little part out of the tape so it doesn't doesn't really matter. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 tells us, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. It's disgusting. It's revolting. It's not just a sin. It is despicable in the sight of God. I mean, the Bible's not confused. God is not confused about this issue. I don't know why we are. Homosexuality is not just a sin. It is an abomination in God's sight. Call it an alternative lifestyle if you please. Or a sexual orientation if you like. But God calls this gay lifestyle an abomination. Understand, just because I feel an impulse toward a person of the same sex, that doesn't make it right. Or moral. I want you to know when I'm on Highway 78 in rush hour traffic, I feel a lot of impulses toward people. <laughs> and if I acted on those impulses, I would hurt somebody. There would be a major accident. And I would end up in jail. Just because you have an impulse doesn't mean you should act on it. And though I'm convinced that there's zero evidence linking homosexuality with any kind of genetic condition... Even if there were, it would mean nothing. For genetic disorders cause Down syndrome. But that doesn't make it desirable, does it? And wouldn't we do all that we possibly can to help that Down syndrome patient live a normal life? And overcome those disabilities? So why not homosexuality? Dennis Prager comments on the reason why Western culture has flourished He says, when Judaism demanded that all sexual activity 
be channeled into marriage, it changed the world. The subsequent dominance of the West can be attributed to the sexual revolution initiated by Judaism and later carried forward by Christianity. This revolution consisted of forcing the sexual genie into the marital bottle. That was good. That's what's allowed us to thrive and channel those sexual energies in positive directions. Prager goes on, though, to describe the utterly wild nature of sex as practiced by the pagan cultures in Bible times. It was unbridled. Anything goes. Grossly perverse. This is why it's no excuse for a homosexual to claim that they are only following their natural desires. My natural desire is to be selfish. My natural desire is to take from you what I want. My natural desires are evil. I need to repent of my natural desires. I need to renounce my sinful lifestyle. And I need to present to God a willingness to change. And then I need to trust God for His help. God wants us to channel all of our sexual energies in godly and in biblical directions. And it all goes back to who knows what's best when it comes to sex. You or God. Let me get to what I really want to say on the subject of homosexuality. God loves sinners. And God loves homosexuals. Yes, He does. Jesus died for homosexuals. But you know, God hates the sin. Just like He hates your sin. Just like He hates my sin. And if a homosexual wants to know God, he or she has to do exactly the same as we have to do. As you have to do. We have to repent of our sin. We have to renounce that selfish lifestyle. We have to present to God the willingness to change. And then we have to trust God for His help. If we do, we'll become born again. And God will give us a brand new start. And God is even able to help the homosexual redirect their sexuality in a way that will please Him. Well, verse 23 tells us, Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. I want you to notice that right on the heels of homosexuality, God mentions another perversion, bestiality or sex with animals. And here is the warning. When sex is stripped of its spirituality... When sex is no longer considered sacred and a gift from God, when sex is seen as purely an animalistic, instinctive act, then, brother, anything goes. Every unimaginable perversion results, even bestiality. And this was not just true in ancient Canaan. Log on to the Internet today, and you'll find this kind of vulgarity in others. It is the result of a seared conscience Indulge in pornography, start down that path, and the consequences are unimaginable. Resort to this kind of titillation, and there is no telling what will come next. Well, verse 24 says, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. Notice God is going to use Israel to judge the Canaanites for these perversities. And he doesn't want Israel to fall into the same trap. He says, for the land is defiled. 
Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who committed them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore you shall keep my ordinance, so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. Now, let me just ask you, does God sound confused about any of this? Is God unsure of what's right and of what's wrong? Then why should we be? God is very clear. God loved His people. And He wanted to protect them. Israel was to be a different people with a different set of rules. Well, chapter 19 tells us, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I hope you know that God is the only whole person in the universe. The rest of us have been chipped and stained and we're missing some pieces. God is the only whole person who exists. But when we give ourselves all that we are wholly unto Him, He makes us whole like Him. This is why he says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. Not just the weekly Sabbath, but the Sabbath every seven years. Also the year of Jubilee, which was the Sabbath every 50th year. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord your God. Here he reminds us of both the first and the second commandments. And if you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, and on the next day, and if any remains until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. And if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an abomination. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from his people. Yesterday, Kathy was gone around dinner time, so I had to get my own meal. And so I went up to Mellow Mushroom Pizza and I spent $20 on the house special. And if you've never had Mellow Mushroom Pizza, it is the best pizza you'll ever put in your mouth. But I bought that big pizza because I'm saving a lot of the pieces. I ate three pieces, and I think I got six pieces left. And so I figure I'll get about three meals out of that. But I got to eat them over the next few days. And if I let them sit around for too long, they're going to sour. They're going to be defiled, you might say. And that's what God is saying here when you offer the peace offering. Make sure you eat it within three days. You know, don't let it. You know, sit around too long. It's not good. Here's one lesson we can get from this. God wants us to feed on fresh sacrifices. I hope you're not relying on yesterday's prayer time or on last week's praise 
how quickly our devotion can become stale. This is why we need to fellowship with God every day. We need to spend time in His presence. Well, verses 9 and 10 institute a very wise welfare system. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. I had a lady this morning who uh, gave us a big bag of blueberries. And she told me, you know, she said, I had all these blueberries left over. And I got to give them to somebody or, or they'll just get wasted. And I quoted her some verse from the Sandy translation about he who gives blueberries to their pastor is blessed. And, uh, and so she gave all those blueberries to me. And they are really, really good. But here he's saying, when you harvest your field, you know, uh, you know don't, don't clean it to the bone. Don't, don't cover, you know, harvest every inch of the field with a fine-tooth comb. Leave some of the fruit still on the vine. This was the way to feed the poor. They allowed the poor to go out into the field. After the harvest had been passed, they allowed the poor then to go out into the field and to pick the leftovers for themselves. And I like this. Because, yes, it showed compassion to the poor, but the poor had to go out and get it themselves. It wasn't just a handout. They had to go out and do something to get it. Verse 11, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. In other words, never use God's name to get your way. You know, we can do that sometimes. Be a bold witness for Jesus, but not just when it might gain for you an advantage. Not just when you're trying to impress your boss or your girlfriend. You know, use the name of Jesus, but do it with integrity. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. In other words, when a man works, pay him as soon as possible. I used to work a job where I got paid once a month. And boy, was it tough to manage your money wisely. And to, by the end of the month, man, we were eating pork and beans. It's tough to manage your money over a whole month. I wish I had known this verse that time. I would have quoted it to my boss. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God, I am the Lord. That's not cruelty even. It's cowardice is what it is. I mean, if you're going to be a jerk, and, and, and if you're going to cuss somebody, at least cuss somebody who can hear you. And if you're going to be a real jerk, and if you're going to trip somebody, at least trip somebody who can see you. But this business about tripping blind people and cursing deaf people, I mean, I think it's obviously teaching a bigger lesson than that, that we need to show respect for the plight of the disabled. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Be even-handed. Show no partiality to either the poor or the rich. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. In other words, don't be a gossip. Don't slander your neighbor. Understand, 
Great minds talk about ideas. Average minds talk about events. Little minds talk about other people. Little minds, tiny minds, puny minds pick up people magazines and subscribe to the National Enquirer. And they are constantly talking about other people. They don't gossip. You know, dwell on ideas. Dwell on grand thoughts, great thoughts about God, about salvation, about the doctrine that we have in the scriptures. Great minds talk about ideas, not people. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Hey, if you truly love your neighbor and you see your neighbor in some error, you won't neglect to lovingly rebuke and correct him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You remember when the scholar approached Jesus and he asked him to name the greatest commandment? Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy 6, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. But then Jesus added, And the second is like it. And he quoted from our text, verse 18, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And by coupling those two verses, Jesus was teaching us that what really matters is for us to love God with all we've got and to love our neighbor. Of the 613 laws of Moses, Jesus says verse 18 here is the second most important. Verse 19 guards against wrong mixtures. He says, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. When God created the natural order, he engineered all living things to reproduce after their kind, according to their own species. The law ordered the Hebrews to respect and to maintain these genetic groupings and these boundaries. Obviously, a disaster is not likely to occur by mixing thread. But I think this could really just be an illustration. I think God may have bigger fish to fry here. Interbreeding animals, we do know, can result in unhealthy tendencies and traits. Go a step further, and the manipulating of genetic codes can result in dangerous and uncontrollable mutations. What is that but mixing seed? I think some of what's going on in the world of genetic engineering today is scary. And where will it stop? Verse 19 may be a whole lot more relevant to us than we think. By the way, you know what you get when you breed Lassie with a pit bull? You get a dog who mauls you and then runs for help. Anyway. Anyway. Be careful when you start mixing stuff. When you start putting stuff together that doesn't belong. You know, mixtures are dangerous. There are a lot of dangerous mixtures. You understand that? Hey, it's dangerous to mix truth with error. It's dangerous to mix a believer with an unbeliever. It's dangerous to mix grace and law. It's dangerous to mix the flesh and the spirit. And it's dangerous to mix yellow jackets and bulldogs. 
Mixtures can be dangerous. Now, whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine and who has not at all been redeemed or given her freedom, for this there shall be scourging, but they shall not be put to death because she was not free. In other words, just because a woman has fallen into slavery, and we've talked about slavery before, it doesn't mean that she can be sexually abused. She has to be respected. And just because a man sins sexually, it doesn't mean there's no forgiveness for him. For he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, a ram as a trespass offering. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed, and the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. Now verses 23 and 24 may sound strange to us, but they target specific Canaanite practices that related to idolatry. He says, when you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised or off limits to you. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you. It shall not be eaten. You see, the Canaanites ate the initial harvest as a sacrifice to their idols. So when the Israelites entered the land, God wanted them to wait until the fifth year before they ate the harvest. This was God's way of keeping his people from any appearance of evil. He didn't want anybody to think they were idolaters or idol worshipers. He says, but in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit, that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. Verse 26. And you shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. And divination is any attempt to link up with the spiritual realm through means apart from direct communication with God. Did you get that? Divination is any attempt to link up with the spiritual realm through means apart from direct communication with God. That means Ouija boards and horoscopes and seances and palm readers and new age channelers and crystal balls and imaging and psychic healing and house hauntings and astrology and ghosts. These are all occult practices and they are forbidden by God. Hey, participate in divination and you are really inviting Satan to use his deceptions on you. And understand the popularity of these practices is growing. Did you know that in 1990, 29% of Americans believed in haunted houses? In 2001, it was up to 42%. In 1990, 18% of people believed you could communicate with the dead. In 2001, the number had grown to 28%. In 1990, 23% of Americans believed in fortune telling. In 2001, the number was at 35%. We need to warn our neighbors that God forbids divination. Verse 27. You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. And again, these were references to Canaanite practices that were associated with idolatry. The Hebrews were not to look like these idolaters. You know, Orthodox Jews today still follow these instructions literally. Here's a picture. Notice he hasn't shaved around the edges of his beard. He hasn't shaved around the corners of his hair. Here's another rabbi we saw at the Wailing Wall.
There he is. <laughs> Several rabbis there. I don't... And, and here's another group we saw at the Wailing Wall. Yeah. There we go. Okay, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. Now, personally, I'm not very fond of tattoos or of body piercings. In fact, I've told my boys that if they want their body pierced, it's okay, but I'm the one who will do the piercing. But as much as I would like to make this a blanket prohibition against tattoos and body piercings, I can't. Because God is not talking here about tattooing as an art or body piercing as a fashion statement. No, in the context of Canaanite culture, these were acts of idolatry. It would have been wrong for a Hebrew to walk into a Canaanite hair salon and trim the edges of his beard. Or to go to the ink shop for a new tattoo in Canaan to get a new do or a new two made the people think that you were an idol worshiper. If you do it today, they just think you got weird hair and you like tattoos. So if your name isn't Adams and you want a tattoo, <laughs> it's up to you. But one thing to remember about tattoos... They don't wash off. Verse 29. Do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry and the land become full of wickedness. And guys, one way to prostitute your daughter is to let her dress like one. Or to pay for her to dress like one. I think... One of the best ways I've been able to influence my daughter's wardrobe is that I pay for her clothes. Or I don't pay for her clothes. Or I make her take her clothes back if they don't meet up to standards. Be careful not to let your daughter dress in an unseeming way. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And again, our sanctuary is not our building necessarily. It's us corporately gathered together to worship. And when we come to worship, we should, we should reverence those times. We should come together with anticipation and faithfulness and seriousness. Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. In other words, any attempt at communicating with the dead is forbidden. If a voice speaks to you, and claims to be a dead guy, it's either a hoax or a demon. You can count on that. Reminds me of the time when I was witnessing to a fortune teller. And she just kept smiling at me with this goofy smile on her face. And it made me mad, quite frankly. And I couldn't help it. I just reached over and just slapped her right across the face. And of course, she called the police. I was arrested. I was brought before the judge. And the judge asked me to explain my actions. And I told him, I said, Judge, I always try to strike a happy medium. <laughs> Verse 32. You shall rise before the gray-headed 
And honor the presence of an old man. And fear your God. I am the Lord. You know, tragically, ours is the first society in history that praises youth and disrespects the elderly. Should be just the opposite. Boy, we've got, have we got things topsy-turvy or what? We should honor our elders. We need their wisdom. We need their advice. Verse 33. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Be kind to strangers and first-time visitors to Calvary Chapel. You shall do... Because you were a first-time visitor once yourself, weren't you? Remember that. You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. In other words, observe fair business practices. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephoth. About a bushel was an ephoth. An honest hen, which was six quarts. You know, in ancient times, business was all done on scales. And so payments and portions were weighed out. Moses is saying, don't fudge on your scales. Don't cheat. Be a person of integrity. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them. I am the Lord. God was giving them a second chance. He was bringing them out of the land of Egypt and letting them start over. And this is what Jesus has done for us. We've been born again. We have a second chance. Now make the most of it. Don't follow the doings of the Gentiles. Follow the doings of God. And in chapter 20, we're going to find out what the penalties are for violating the commandments that we've looked at tonight. So there we have it. Leviticus 17, 18, and 19. Did you learn anything tonight? Good. Is God fuzzy about morality? I don't think so. God knows where he stands. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for encouraging our hearts. Bless your people as we go home. Give us all safe trips home. Bless the kids tomorrow at school. And Lord, walk with us all week long as we seek to be a light and a witness for Jesus Christ. Help us to warn our neighbors. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us, Lord, to point them to Jesus. And we pray these things in your name, Lord. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.